Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Matt and Becky. Sadly, we're missing Fraser this week as he is taking a well-earned break. He is, but of course the show must go on. And today we are talking about the only show in town, which is the UK music industry. This contributes billions of pounds to the British economy every year. Many artists and bands are prominent public figures in raising awareness about the climate crisis. But just how carbon intensive is the music industry today? And what can we do to reduce its footprint? Helping us answer that question are Carly McLaughlin and Christopher Jones from the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research. We also have Lewis Jameson from Music Declares Emergency. And... As today is a music-themed episode, Matt has kindly agreed to kick it off by singing us a song. Oh, goodness. Right. Well, my guitar's downstairs, so thankfully we don't have to endure that whole process, although the kids do every bath time. Um, Okay, but, you know, I have been looking forward to this episode for a long time, and it's a topic that I think we all have been keen to cover for quite a while, Um, something that touches everybody's lives and something that's very close to my heart anyway. So um, before we get stuck into this very musical episode, how are you, Becky? Hot. It is very Hot. warm and sticky everywhere. <laughs> yes. And and so we're probably sitting here one of the hottest days of the year so far. And you've chosen this day of all days to get some double glazing in. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely have. So I'm sure uh, anyone that's been listening to the show for a while will know that I moved home earlier this year and I have been on a big building and retrofit journey, which is including getting a heat pump installed. And one of the other huge components of that is obviously how well the heat stays in my home. And now I did have double glazed windows before, but they were very leaky sash windows where, Mm -hmm. you know, double glazing, great, but the actual casing just let loads and loads of air in. So if it was at all windy outside, which it often is in Cornwall by the coast, um, the curtains would just be kind of billowing out. So yes, we are getting double glazed windows. If we hear some ambient drilling noise, that'll be that. Yes. Um, Okay, but yes, it is is hot, very hot. I I mean... I don't know, you're down in Cornwall, I'm up in Glasgow. We have had one day, one one hour of rain really for the last four or five weeks. It's it's insane. Yep. Um, I'm about 
in a couple of days about to go climb some some hills in Scotland and elsewhere. Um, warnings that there are no mountain streams, you know, pack litres and litres of water. This is how bad things have got. My goodness me. It's pretty, pretty scary from that perspective, but quite exciting for all those people with solar panels on their roofs. It is, yes. So I was digging into some some numbers from the Solar Association. So um, many of you maybe listening to this uh, have installed solar or are thinking about doing it if and when the the opportunity and the um, price cost allows. Um, but the, some of the the um, current data is suggesting that just in the last few months, we're seeing install rates about quadruple what they were after the feed-in tariff closed, which was a very lucrative, or at one point, very lucrative subsidy uh, to get it on your roof, but also uh, pre-COVID, so kind of before things got got very disrupted and, and, and horrible. So the cost of energy is making an impact. This is good. People are shoving solar panels on their roofs. And this is important, Becky, because mm-hmm. uh, as we speak, a couple of days before, hottest ever temperature recorded in the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. Um, it is off the chart. Literally, the charts I've seen, the the y-axis, the one that sticks up, uh, not sideways, uh, didn't account for this. Um, I, I mean, I giggle, but it's, it's frightening. It so scary. I guess this juxtaposition, good things are happening, people are taking the action, uh, but there's a reason Absolutely. to do it. Absolutely. And the other thing that sunshine is very good for, aside from my uh, tomato plants and courgette plants that are growing in the garden, um, is music festivals. So we've got, as we're recording this, Glastonbury is just around the corner. It is. And my husband Dave just got back from Download, where actually he was saying it's been incredibly dusty. So usually we hear about all of the mud that people are squelching through. Dave came back and had to just like soak all of his stuff for days to get all of the dust out of his out of his kit. It was pretty savage. Yeah, reminiscent of Mad Max with some sort of block rocking beats and just dust. (laughs) Horrible. Anyway, well, I hope you had a good time. Um, And obviously, you know, Glastonbury around the corner. Glastonbury is one of these events, calendar events. There'll be many of you who've, uh, you know, wanting to to head along. Sadly, I've never been along of you, Becky. Have you ever managed to get along? I have never been to Glastonbury, no. I'm not really a fan of camping. I mean, I I was in my 20s and into my 30s, but now... (laughs) Bit of a problem. Yeah, I'm kind of <laughs> bit of an occupational of hazard with a music festival. That camping, definitely that camping thing. Um, but I mean, we're both, I think, uh, fair to say, big big fans of music. Yeah. Now, um, but climate change music, the genre of climate action, um, it's something I'm kind of increasingly aware of. But I would struggle to name. I had no idea. No, about well, this. it it is a thing. <laughs> it is, a thing. and in fact, even. We go back two years ago, The Guardian listed the top 10 or top 20, in fact, greatest songs about the climate change crisis. Like one of my favourite songs on that list from Funkadelic is Maggot Brain, sort of sit there, very sort of psychedelic, you know, guitar-led music. I think it's a really important point to make that on that list, there are many artists from the 60s and 70s who are, you know, at the height of their powers and of, of their fame were writing about broader environmental crises that weren't just climate-related. Like, they knew... The game was up, and they knew we needed to take action. And they were singing about it and making the point um, from the, you know, the, the the sort of early '60s onwards. And I think this climate change genre is just another iteration of that. Anyway, you know, to our producer beforehand, saying that the one big one that's kind of missing, I guess, a lot of people do know is Michael Jackson, the Earth Song, yep. uh, which was a huge hit. 
yes. in the 90s. But there are many bands, you know, taking uh, taking up the mantle here. The 1975, many people will have heard of. Uh, Patrick, our producer, was saying one of his favourites did a collaboration with Greta Thunberg. Um, so, you know, but the importance of music, like why? Mm. why? We'll get onto the carbon footprint of it, but why do you think, or do you think, cl- uh, music is important in, in raising that climate agenda? Well, I actually... I have to admit, hadn't really thought about the link between music and climate before we talked about doing an episode for the show. And I, I mean, I don't really know why it hadn't come to my mind. I guess I, I listen to music, I enjoy listening to it, but I've never really thought about all of the stuff that sits behind that, whether we're talking about, you know, the big events and the big festivals or um, or just kind of the wider stuff that's happening behind the industry at all. But chatting with my husband when he came back from downloads, I mean, he was talking about, you know, just the sheer amount of energy resource in terms of lighting, the lighting in the stadiums and the, um, you know, the sound machines, which are presumably hooked up with diesel generators. I don't know, maybe we'll hear more later. He was talking about the huge amount of resources in terms of like the shower blocks, as well as what people are eating there. And there's a lot of well, vendors there and they're yeah. all selling meat. And so I just thought it was quite interesting reflecting back yeah. on that now, like knowing that we were doing this episode. Well, yeah. And so I think going back to Glastonbury, you know, Glastonbury and Worthy Farm and the Evises, um, you know, there's a whole rich history there about action that they've taken to try and reduce the environmental footprint of this. Um, we'll go in a moment to what they're doing today. But if we if we look back, there's a fascinating piece by Business Green looking uh, looking at the uh, the wind turbine they've put up this year. But the, the, the sort of back catalogue here of action that they've taken includes replacing uh, chemical toilets with compost toilets, um, hand-separated sep- hand waste streams uh, to aid recycling, um, banning single-use plastic drink bottles that make you bring a reusable bottle. Obviously, very good idea. And this year, banning disposable vapes, which is my biggest bugbear at present. Um, yes. So, you know, a real a real issue that they're getting on top of. And this year, they got they've got Octopus who've in, um, erected their uh, their wind turbine for this year. So amazing! They are doing things. Is it enough? Uh, well, I think maybe we'll dig into that a little bit later today. But I will say this: I think it's. Very exciting looking at what they're doing, not just in terms of the direct impact that they might be having, but also that broader indirect impact. Mm. So if people are heading to Glastonbury and start to, you know, see and interact with some of these interventions, you know, what what could that be doing to help raise awareness even further and engage people even further? Maybe nothing, maybe something, but I still think it's quite an exciting opportunity. Yeah, and, and we're definitely going to get into that in this episode is about the kind of carbon footprint of music. It's not particularly live music we'll talk about here. Um, we'll get into the other stuff, but um, not just the actual event that's happening at that moment in time, but how people get there and also what they eat, Becky. And, you know, there's all these uh, all these considerations. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to note something that I became aware of during COP26 in Glasgow, which was kind of an, a neat way of turning this on its head. You know, can music generate energy yeah. and, and cut emissions? And at a venue in, in Glasgow, SWG3, um, they had this amazing kind of body heat experiment where people, the, the body heat generated by people was piped via a carrier fluid 200 metres beneath the surface in a borehole and they used it as a thermal battery and then that, that was able to be released uh, and to help drive heat pumps and, and, and generate power. So, you know, a little bit of a play on that kinetic uh, dance floor that you might <laughs> you've seen kind of trialled at big toy shops or... My kids have one downstairs. 
<laughs> it plays music. But I love that because one of the things, you know, and I am sort of, you know, the dredging my mind back to when I did actually used to go to clubs pre-children. Um, but they were always so hot. So I wonder if this can also make it just more comfortable to dance around and extract all that heat and actually make it useful. Yeah. Brilliant idea. Quite right. And and it's not just on the venues either and the tour operators, um, you know, I guess there's a lot to do with the bands and not just what they're um, writing about, but also the kind of the efforts that they're, they're going to to support these things directly, not just indirectly. So um, our, our producer, Patrick, again, big musician himself, um, pointed to Coldplay. So, I mean, back in the day, I used to be a Coldplay fan um, before um, before they before, got less good. Before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't want to offend anybody on the call or, uh, or Chris Martin for that matter. But, you know, done because some amazing things. Chris Martin things. listens to our podcast. Of course, but... <laughs> personal friend of mine or was yeah. at least so you know I've done all sorts I think you know in terms of slashing their CO2 emissions I think by half from the uh, previous stadium tour cutting waste by two-thirds planting five million trees there's a whole lot of stuff uh, that they've done and uh, we cannot forget either they have a kinetic dance floor too um, apparently which I mean I haven't been to a Coldplay gig so there's a whole there's a whole gamut of kind of stakeholders out there who can be doing a lot of stuff and I just wanted to end on this question before Becky before we bring people in mm. do you think either personally or friends and family do you think music could have a real impact on people's decisions about climate action do you think it has that power I think music is incredibly powerful and I was reflecting on this when we were just talking about those you know the songs that are associated with climate change and actually I have songs that are so personal to me that are probably nothing to do with climate change but this emotion that they throw up can almost put me into despair or hope they can really st or stimulate action and I think music can be so powerful in that way that not just looking at music from a perspective of looking to what the music industry is doing or looking at particular musicians as public figures but I actually think leveraging music as an art form can be an incredible way of engaging people too. Uh, I'd agree. Win the heart, not just the head. I think there's a lot to be said for that. So I think without further ado, let's bring in the experts and hear what they have to say. I'm Carly McLaughlin. I'm Professor of Climate and Energy Policy. I lead Tyndall Manchester, a research group at the University of Manchester. My name is Chris Jones. I'm the Knowledge Exchange Fellow at the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research at the University of Manchester. Hi, I'm Lewis Jamieson. I'm one of the co-founders of the UK charity Music Declares Emergency and I've worked in the music industry for 35 years. So welcome everybody to this exciting episode. Been wanting to do this for many months, in fact, probably years now. So one thing that I guess has been bugging me really is about when I've got Spotify on in, you know, of an evening or on the way to work, um, is just how carbon intensive that process is. Not just be listening to this recorded music, but also the kind of the live music associated with some of my favourite bands. Is this a guilty pleasure? Um, I mean, <laughs> have many. But is this one of the, the top ones that I need to be addressing? So I just wondered, Lewis, you've been in and around the music industry f for many years. Um, is this something that each of us should be aware of? You know, just how carbon intensive is the music industry today? Well, like like anything that, that that creates things and uses energy, it it uses carbon. So so yeah, there is an impact. Absolutely. Um, I think then it becomes a, a moral judgment as to what you think is a is a reasonable amount of carbon, if we're talking strictly carbon terms, for an industry to use to create the artifacts and to create the experiences that it does. Um, certainly in the, the kind of global mix of 
what do we solve first to solve the climate crisis? Music, the music industry, even the global music industry, would come a hell of a long way down the list. Um, you know, your, your big friends, energy production, energy consumption, agriculture, fashion, um, travel are all way beyond it. The, the other problem with the music industry is what do you define as the music industry? So music's tentacles spread everywhere. You know, is the Ramones t-shirt in Primark a music industry product or is it a fashion product? Is the music on a film, a film product or a music product and so on and so forth? Um, and in terms of you listening to your streaming service of choice without wishing to highlight one over the other, there is, to my knowledge, no comprehensive data there. And there is a huge debate going on as to who owns what emissions there. It's a really tangled web. But what you can say is that certainly in Europe, the UK and the, to a degree, the United States of America, uh, the major music markets, the music industry has started to grasp the nettle a little bit and get a lot better at a lot of the overproduction, overuse, and should we say somewhat cavalier attitudes towards things that it had up until middle of last decade, I would say. Yeah, and I think that's a really important framing again, Lewis. You know, so often when we're dealing with carbon emissions, you know, we're looking at these these bins of emissions, things like buildings, transport, food. And as you say, music kind of covers across a lot of these. But Carly, Chris, you know, scientists, Tyndall Centre, Manchester, your your bag, or at least part of it, is trying to put some numbers to this. Um, do, do you agree with, with Lewis's point? Can we can we easily kind of quantify or disaggregate the emissions associated with the music industry? And if so, what are the bigger, biggest drivers associated with it? Well, the short answer is that, as Lewis kind of pointed out, that there isn't good data really, holistically, about the music industry. It's a bit of a different beast from like steel products which are kind of measured in and out of countries. We can work that out quite nicely. Um, Music's, it's lots of different things that's been pointed out there. So whereas we can point to a reduction in CD sales and the life cycle emissions associated to that as as a tick, you know, streaming, of course, has sort of stepped into that gap and is used in a, consumed in a different way again to, 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 to CDs or those physical items. So the, the nature of the footprints changed and the, the measuring of what, you know, what's being used by who is, is even less clear than it was then. Um, even streaming, for example, you know, you can ask, you know, five different researchers, what's the carbon intensity of a, of a, a, a bit of data? And you might get different answers because it's something that's changing so rapidly with the technology involved that sits behind it in data centers, et cetera, but also the supply of energy to those data centers. So it's uh, rapidly evolving. Are people streaming more, uh, you know, are, are they streaming more frequently? You know, there's a, there's a, the consumption side and the supply side is a bit unclear at the moment on, on music. What we tend to focus on is live music where the it, it's in some ways it's, it's a bit more packaged up. We know the boundary a bit clearer. But even there, you know, where are people traveling from to go to shows? Um, how are they traveling? That's not information that's available. So you can't put a really solid number on that as you can for, you know, a ton of steel. It's such a it's such an interesting point, and I was reflecting uh, to Matt earlier that my husband's just come back from being at the Download Festival. Does that make me sound really old? I just called it the Download Festival. So he just he's just come back from the Download, download and yes, yeah, he was saying yeah. like some of the Glastonbury. Yeah, yeah, it's moving swiftly on. Um, and he was reflecting to me that like some of his friends, it took them fourteen hours to get there. Just the sheer amount of traffic going on around like tra- people trying to get in once they got close um, and then not just that but then when they were there all that they could find to eat was you know 
that, that was being sold was like burgers, like meat intensive food. And so I think it sort of raises a really interesting point around these boundaries. But I mean, if we can just start to break that down a little bit, because I, I don't have it very clear in my head. And I think we've alluded to a couple of things. But what really are some of those big contributors to emissions? Like where are our big buckets of things that we can think about and that we can look at? Well, I mean, just just from the focusing on the live music for a moment where we've done the, the most kind of work, in some ways it's a, it can be a, a, even a, that question about where, where are most of the emissions can be a difficult question because we can point to audience travel as the biggest share of emissions potentially because there are more people. It stands to reason that that's where most of the carbon is. But people are traveling, they're going to travel somewhere to some extent um, and they're going to that festival so that festival can do something about those emissions. But if we look at look at it purely in proportion, we might think that the, the festival itself isn't a big source of emissions. But actually, it's the source of emissions that the industry probably should be the most concerned about in the immediacy because it's what has the most direct control over. So it, it may not necessarily be just about proportion, but also, um, you know, what's there in front of us to start taking ownership of and, and action on most rapidly and energy use at festivals and, or, you know, band travel, equipment usage, you know, these things around the industry, how it functions itself. Those are, those are the things that we can get into first, um, you know, as well as looking at the, you know, the wider chain of um, emissions that are potentially bigger in scale. So, so I think it's, it's one, one of these things, it's amorphous beast, which is, which is music. And we can kind of say similar things around these kind of recreational activities that we engage with, you know, sport and enjoyment of that might be another, but just trying to boil this down to something where, you know, the audience can listen to this and say, ah, two or three things we should be pushing at. What what should they be? And Carly, I know through Tyndall, you've been involved with, you've been working with Massive Attack, I think, on this, another big, you know, amazing band. Did you get a sense from them, you know, the things that they were mostly concerned about? They, they said, look, if you're going to tackle two or three things, this ought to be it. Yeah, I mean, I think the point that Chris makes is right. It's about the areas that you have control over. And for me, it it links to kind of having like authentic leadership in a space that you have to get the stuff that you've got direct control over sorted out before you can effectively unleash the sort of power of music to bring people on the, you know, the journey you want to take them on around climate action, um, or even to start getting involved in what you think they should be doing about how they're traveling to your show. You know, so if it's like, I've got 70 trucks and I'm knocking about all over the place back and forth with no kind of efficient routing in a private jet, but you need to get a bus to my gig. Uh, that just, you know, I think that's a problematic uh, kind of thing to communicate with audiences. Whereas I think if it feels much more uh, consistent that you have thought about right from the beginning of your tour, you've thought about how you're designing uh, your set so that you're reducing the number of trucks that you're taking on the road, uh, that you're thinking about reusing. You know, so some some of the staging providers, for example, will give you uh, a, a, like a catalogue of what they already have. So if you need something that's like this, uh, don't make it half a metre wider because we've already got one that's that you can reuse. You know, so you can be thinking about it right from that early stage, get the number of truck movements down, you can be thinking about going on the train instead of flying. You can certainly be thinking about flying commercial rather than in a private jet. But then, and, and you know, the great thing about working with Massive Attack for us was that they'd already done loads of this. So they're such a kind of informed and engaged partner to work with. Um, so, you know, we might go out as academics and say, it'd be really great if bands thought about not flying between between gigs. 
And, you know, people can kind of roll their eyes and be like, well, these academics, like they've just not, you know, what, what would they know? They're not in the industry. But Massive were already doing that. You know, and it's so powerful that if you can say, well, look, these these guys do it. They've, they've, you know, and they haven't just done it right now when we're t out talking about this research. They did it, you know, in their in their last show or in their last couple of shows. So, so what what kind of things have they been doing, Carly? Because in in the kick around before you guys came in, we were talking about Coldplay and some of the things that they they've been you know talking about. Is is, is there anything that Massive Attack? kind of came out and said, look, these are the things we can control and these are the things that we're doing. Yeah, so I think for them, you know, it's about it's about like thinking about the routing, thinking about organising your timing so that you can travel by train as much as possible between your shows and thinking about um, making a brilliant, beautiful, engaging show but that travels in fewer trucks. Uh, and that really requires thinking about it at the beginning uh, rather rather than the end. And then I think the other thing that is really exciting about them is that they do a lot of stuff of working with partners. So thinking about the venues that they're going to um, or thinking about the local transport partnerships around a show to say, actually, how can we try and get tickets lined up with a rail ticket? How can you think about um, selling a show so that you have a round, of, a round of sales that is for people that could walk to the show first and you sell as many tickets in that geography as possible and then you sort of, you take it out and out. Uh, you don't do anything that's about trying to promote international travel packages for shows. Um, you know, so you're not driving that demand by creating kind of easy pathways to fly around the world to go to, to, go to shows. And it's worth noting, I think, from your report, Chris, I think something that you'd maybe t taken the lead on there is that urban festivals can have a lower footprint because that's where the people are, not necessarily Worthy Farm in Glastonbury, not, not doing it down. People want to get away for, you know, the weekend. I completely understand that. But that kind of logic, I think, Carly, is, is what you're pointing at. Yeah, and uh, we mentioned in the report a little bit that, you know, it's, it, festivals in particular have a struggle because they're, they are like a pop-up city without the infrastructure to support that. And we struggle to decarbonize cities like Manchester anyway. And, uh, you know, doing that for somewhere that only exists for like two weeks, that's a, that's a huge challenge in itself. So there are places that are already set up with transport links, with electricity grid connections. Those kind of festivals will have a head start on being lower carbon just because they're aligned with infrastructure because you do need a different type of infrastructure to be low carbon than you do to, you know, do it in the carbon intensive way. That said, we, we, we have a very strange festival kind of calendar here in the UK because of the way it's grown up. So we don't really have dedicated festival sites. Um, so as Chris points out, you know, Glastonbury, or was it you, Matt, pointed out, Glastonbury is probably the worst place in the world to try and get main, mains power to. And why would you do it? It's used for five days a year. Nonetheless, there's Glasgow Green, there's Hyde Park. There are sites around the country that would be prime candidates to be put onto the grid and to be able to use clean, renewable power. Um, and we we did some investigative work with Festival Republic, the big festival promoter over here, which they're they are continuing to, to pursue. Uh, and the amount of bureaucracy you have to get through is mind-boggling. Um, so without wishing to sound too much like a house-building MP, um, we could do with uh, slashing some of the planning around this stuff if we're serious about it. Um, the way I always explain it is Reading Festival is next to a high-speed railway line. Uh, it clearly is a massive power source somewhere close by because there are trains whizzing past. Um, that site's been used every year and clearly it would be a prime candidate. Uh, and Hyde Park is slap bang in the middle of London and is about to host 
at least six weekends of live entertainment that I'm aware of this summer. Um, so that, for me, I, I take uh, Carly's point. Uh, I'd like to just do a little bit of, of justification of my world. Not many artists use private jets. It is a very very small amount of artists that use private jets. They are fascinatingly expensive and incredibly impractical unless you are literally headlining across the world. Most artists do travel by sleeper coach, even the headliners at big festivals. Um, but I do agree with virtually everything that's been said there. And routing is the big one in terms of what the artists can do on their own. Routing is, is the big one. Routing has been recognised finally as something that has to be better. Um, it used to be that the artists or the artist representatives, and again, I think it's important to point out that it's not the artists necessarily making these decisions, it's their booking agents and their management, because the artist always ends up being the one the fingers pointed at, and often, oftentimes it's not the artist that made the decision. Um, but they would chase the money. Uh, there is increasingly an understanding that that a, a combination of of obviously being mindful of the money, but also being mindful of the impacts, is coming into play. And the final thing I mentioned is that the idea of exclusions is a big thing here in live events, in live festival events. So if you're not aware of what those are, if you're booked for a, a big end slot at a festival in your contract, it will say you cannot play within 100, 150, 200 miles of that site within one, two, three, four, six months sometimes. So if you start to look at that in terms of international shows, I have had artists that have flown to Coachella to play a show and flown back because I couldn't get them any shows anywhere on the West Coast because of the exclusion. So it was more cost effective to fly them in and out than it was to try and fly them to the other side of America to then play shows. So that's that's another change that, that thankfully is coming. Wow. I mean, it's uh, the more we dig into it, the more complex and, and interesting this is getting. And, you know, Lewis, I'm particularly interested in, you know, in what Music Declares Emergency is doing in this kind of broader focus, because you're bringing together not just artists, but other, you know, people in the industry behind the scenes. And, and maybe you could talk a little bit more around that, you know, what what is the broader focus of change? So, Okay. You know, what what do we need to see happening? And I think importantly in that, and you mentioned about, um, you know, timing and, and, you know, locations of gigs. I mean, do consumers, do people that are buying tickets that are ultimately driving, I guess, the, the desire for those events have a role mm. to play in addressing any of this? Uh, let's start with, with, with when music to close position on a lot of this stuff. We, we're very much in the same position as Carly. Uh, uh, the, the, her position of you solve the things you can solve first before you start telling anybody else what to do. Um, from our perspective, it was very important when we started and remains important that the industry keeps trying to get better across the board. Because one of the things we're looking to do is use the, the, the artist kind of position, that unique position artists have with their fan bases. To to break open the conversation, we, we our starting position was that the conversation around the climate emergency was arguably a little bit exclusive, and and actually the research just backed us up. It wasn't reaching enough people. A lot of people felt it was a conversation they weren't invited to. So it was a conversation with no disrespect intended for academics and scientists and people who lived in urban centres, et cetera, et cetera, a certain type of person, shall we say, without wishing to get too stereotypical. Um, and we believe that music could be a way of encouraging people to come out out of that thinking and start to actually see the relevance of the conversation to their day-to-day -day lives. 
through their favorite artists, finding ways to make the conversation more amenable. Um, and I think to a degree, what we've done over the last four or so years has proved that's the case. Um, not just as lots of other people as well. I mean, it's been happening in film and TV and all across culture. So that, that that's one of the, the first founding principles of it. The, the problem is that you start to hit value judgments. So for instance, if a music fan says to you, I'm going to go to Penny Cassine, which is the big summer festival, because all my favorite bands are playing, given what, how we're talking, you would say, well, that's bad behavior because you shouldn't go to, uh, you should go to a music festival in the UK. But the question back is then if they say, but it's my summer holiday, do we then make a value judgment that that's okay? Or is that not okay? So it gets very complex around making value judgments about people's behavior. We tend to feel that it's more powerful to use music to bring people together to discuss and feel engaged with the conversation to then use that sense of power, collective power, to push for the big changes we need in terms of the delivery systems. So for instance, transport networks, you know, I, I, you can just about tour Europe by train, but it's eye-wateringly expensive to take your crew and the band on a train. It's, it's actually the cheapest way to do it is in a sleeper coach. But again, you know, a great example of this is when electric options of sleeper coaches start to come through. I was talking to, to somebody who hires them and they were saying, as yet, there is no government tax incentive on them. So what's going to happen is when they have these new vehicles that are either hybrid or electric, and you go and say, I want to hire a sleeper coach. They say, well, you can have the old nasty diesel one and it costs this much. Or you can have the brand spanking new low emissions one, but it's going to cost you five times as much. Because unlike, where is it? Is it Norway? Where they adjusted the market and, and created electric car usage. We have nothing like that in, that in this country. So, you know, there are questions there around how do you incentivize behaviors as well. Um, and that's something that Music Declares is always talking to the industry about. And I think it's an important point to, to raise there about, you know, the cost and implications. So if you take your kind of hypothetical example um, of, you know, a UK band touring Europe and this, they're making the point, we're going to go by train. This is going to be super low carbon. We're going to go electric trains all the way. Um, but it's going to take us longer. It's going to cost more. Um, and you're thinking, well, that cost has then got to, you know, follow through somewhere. And and it's, the, I think, going back to Becky's point, it's the consumer that picks up the tab. So, um, you know, is there something, I kind of want to come back to this consumer point because, um, and I'm maybe going to defer to Carly and Chris here, just in terms of what those folk listening, many people will be listening to this on, you know, Apple or Spotify, or whatever platform they are, thinking, well, what can I do? Because many of the points that you will raise are obviously completely sensible, but it feels like it's a bit out with the the control, which we keep coming back to, of the consumer, or is it? So what, Carly, Chris, have you got a, a, maybe a different view here or, or a similar view about what we as individual consumers can do? I mean, I think there's there's something in, you, you know, celebrating the artists that you love doing things that you think are great, you know? So the way that you interact with those artists, however that is, probably through social media, um, that you celebrate the stuff that they're doing that you think is great. 
Um, and I think also it's it's reasonable. You know, if you if if you're a kind of active consumer that would ask questions of uh, the places where you buy things from, that you would be asking venues or artists um, or festivals what they're what they're doing about stuff and what you'd like what you'd like to see them them doing. So I, I think there is a role for consumers for sure. Um, but I actually think that there's a lot of activity within the industry trying to make this stuff happen at the moment. There are lots of I don't know if the sea has completely, you know, turned to be the tide is completely turned to 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 mean that it's, you know, all in hand. But there are an awful lot of pockets of people uh, trying to kind of positively disrupt um, traditional practice. So I, I don't think we should put it all, at, you know, at the at the at, at consumers. The other thing I would say about cost is we have to remember that the system we're in at the moment has all kinds of costs that fall on people down the line. Um, and I, I think to present it just as your ticket price might go up a bit, you know, what are the implications of all of these emissions for you know, particularly the most vulnerable people in society. Uh, so it's not it's not uh, this one costs more and that one costs less. They cost they cost differently. And if you look at the kind of cost of some big concert tickets, um, I'm not sure that actually you know the, the the additional cost of some of these green measures, some of which is doing less, so costs less. You know, let's not present it all as costing more because some of this stuff actually will save money in the tour. Um, but I, I'm not sure that that is the kind of, you know, the straw that would break the camel's back if you look at some of the, the particularly the, the big venue ticket prices now. Lewis might tell me that's wrong and that's that's fine if he, if he disagrees. <laughs> no, you're, you're, no I, 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 I don't disagree with anything you, you've just said there. You're, you're absolutely... I mean, the, you know, the, the, the greatest example is putting grid power into festivals. Festivals spend large amounts of money on diesel you know, because you need two generators as well. You don't need one generator per stage. You need two because if one breaks, you need a backup. So you've got this generator running uh, at, at a low level, but nonetheless running all day just in case. So you've got this kind of wastage going. So I totally agree with you. I mean, one of the things we got very excited about, the idea of bringing grid power to any site, was, was not just that it would reduce the energy cost and obviously reduce the emissions, but also it would mean that that site might be accessible to groups that couldn't access it otherwise because of not just the cost of bringing in diesel generation and everything around it, power generation, but also the insurance costs and, and so forth would, would go down. So you increase access. So there's all kinds of benefits. I totally agree with you. I mean, I... I, my issue about rail travel is is more focused on the UK than it is in Europe. Actually, it's actually quite it, it's it's doable in Europe. Once you get to Paris, Paris, you know, Gardenor, you, you're kind of okay. Your your numbers start to work. It's just getting there that's the problem. So again, I think you know the, the music industry is very bad at advocating for changes. In, in, in terms of the legal frameworks that exist in, or, or the tax frameworks that exist in, and I think it needs to find its voice around this stuff. That's my honest, general, personal opinion. It's got this huge amount of financial and advocacy power, and there's things like nighttime economy, public transport services, there's things like train travel, there's things like tax breaks for sustainability initiatives and so forth. That, and, and, and there's the thread of community that, that the entire kind of venue landscape of, of Great Britain creates is this community of people with shared-ish kind of views and uh, and and i just think it need, and one of the things music declares very interested is how we can start to use that to, to to better the places that music exists in and i also just wanted to ask the question something chris said 
earlier on about you know this kind of shift from CDs to streaming and this notion that there's a kind of a lower uh, environmental, shall we say, footprint associated with that. And just you know, a couple of the big shifts that we've seen in the industry: streaming is one, and two, obviously punctuated massively by COVID. But my impression of this, and please sense check this, is that there's been a much bigger emphasis on generating income through live music because streaming just doesn't generate the same income for bands that it, it might have done on a, you know w- with a traditional record label deal. Um, so are we are we in a situation now where the music industry is actually beholden to more live music and by extension is under greater pressure to put on this festival of music across you know 365 days a year and and does that make this an even bigger problem in terms of environmental and carbon footprint yeah, what the economics of it is certainly skewed towards life yeah absolutely um live is now the major profit center um, it's, it's literally changed over in the last 30 years, which is why some of the shows at some of the big venues, your, your ticket can cost you upwards of 200 pounds. As I discovered to my cost when my 14 year old daughter went, I want to go to X a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, and th- there is an argument that says that's unsustainable. I mean, th- there are voices from the music industry that wonder how, just how long and what capacity this market has given the prevailing economic winds. What the solution to that is, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly in terms of venue life, you can see how venues could be zero carbon. You know, their electricity supply is fixed. It's just fix the rest of it. And you're, you know, in terms of your scope one and twos, you're zero carbon. Then your problem is your audience travel. If, if you you know, if you're going to start including that, but everything else, you could be as near to zero carbon as you can get. And certainly, you know, the O2 and Hydro and various other venues are, well on the way on that journey. So it's not all doomed. There's a lot of great work going on. And if, if you think about artists maybe wanting to publish like their the footprint of their tour or having a, a, a target for like tour on tour reductions, then I think it's totally possible that you start to see um, you know, bands and their associated management saying they want to go to this this particular like chain of venues because they all have a zero carbon electricity contract in place and that means that you know because if they don't do that they will you know they'll have an increase on on the year before and I think the work that particularly kind of powerful artists can do one of the questions we often get is like oh well you know, like massive or a, you know, are a, a big name. They can have they they they've they've had their sort of they've had a lot of years of enjoying this sort of world, and now they're saying all these things that have implications for sort of more upcoming artists. I think it's actually completely the other way around, in that they are taking the opportunity and the and the platform that they have to try and create change in the industry that helps uh, everybody coming through. So if you create a legacy by convincing uh, a, a particular venue to go onto a zero carbon um, tariff, then actually everyone else doesn't have to do that work anymore because they're just on it. So like a, a, a particular example of that is like Billie Eilish at the O2 um, insisted that the whole venue was vegan for the time that she was there. And the legacy that remains after that is that they don't sell beef burgers anymore. So they had a relationship with a, you know, with a plant-based company, and they just decided that they they would they brought up, they brought some products back, but they didn't bring beef burgers back. And you know, I, I suppose it's not a transformation of the whole system, but that's one thing that she leaves for everybody that comes through that that afterwards. We were at the Billy shows, and they were fascinating to be part of because it was the most joined up expression I've seen. And it was, it was also, for me, it was like exactly how you do it. 
So the venue, the promoter, the agent, the, the manager, the artist and the audience because of the way that they promoted it, were all aware of what was going on. So from the moment you got off the tube at North Greenwich, all the way through into the show and out of the show, you knew what was going on. And it created this kind of possibilities of how things could be going forward, which is a really powerful thing. That's 120,000 people over six nights who were exposed to these ideas, not in a preachy, sanctimonious, finger-waggy way, but in a, wow, look at this. This is amazing. And backstage was the same and the crew were on board and the production managers. It was brilliant. And it, as, as it should be the template that everybody follows. And it also introduced new ideas and economies of scale being what they are that will filter down to those smaller bands, just like Coldplay and Massive Attack. New innovations that they've taken their money out of their pocket to create will filter down, become affordable at lower levels and therefore drive change. So they should be applauded every time they do something like that. Yeah, I love that. And you, you kind of took the question right out of my mouth because I was going to ask you like how powerful you thought that the music industry and actually just the role of music more broadly could be in tackling change and like really addressing the climate crisis and creating that bigger legacy. And I wonder if you've seen any other areas where where that's happening as well. I mean, we, we kind of, without saying glib, we see it all the time with what we do around, you know, No Music on a Dead Planet, which is our kind of central campaign. Um so Billy again, she wore she wore that slogan on a specially created outfit to the the American Music Awards, and and it just kick started this this kind of youth engagement with the phrase. And now the phrase you see it all over social media all the time. It's become like this little badge of saying, "I like music, and I'm concerned about the climate." And you think on one level, so what? But on another level, that's really powerful because it allows people to identify each other. It, it, you know, one of the biggest problems with young people in terms of the climate emergency is a feeling of desperation and isolation. And that's not helped, by the way, by mainstream media demonising their spokespeople as doom goblins and going on and on about how, oh, why don't they just cheer up and so on and so forth, you know, as though there's something wrong with them being anxious about their planet being on fire. Um and, and, you know, that in itself and that support for, you know, not just from Billy, but from Foles and from Radiohead and from, oh God, Bring Me The Horizon and millions of others. It, it's brought all these different disparate people together, not just in the UK, but across the world. So people can see each other now and they know that, you know, and, and one of the, the, the things that particularly interests us is this idea of, of the global power of music to, to allow people to recognise other people Unlike them, but like them is the phrase I'm, I mean. So you, you get kids who are into K-pop talking across time zones and seeing each other's realities. And that's far more powerful than a documentary about why climate justice is important because this is happening on the other side of the planet. If you're actually actively speaking with somebody on the other side of the planet and they can tell you in their own words how this is affecting them, that's far more powerful. So there's that. There's also, you know, that kind of shift of the media agenda, that, that shift of the, you know, what they call the Overton window shift, which is very important. You know, we're, in the UK, I would suggest we're in a quite benign situation in terms of acceptance of the problem. We deal in other countries like Brazil and America where that's clearly not the, not the case. And we need to keep shifting that Overton window because we need to get to a point where everybody accepts this is a global problem and therefore we can start to look at global solutions. And music, again, is a great carrier of messages across borders and across cultures, particularly 
weirdly because of streaming, which seems to have finally broken down the UK-US kind of hegemony over popular music. As you'll see, you know, if you've got kids, they'll be listening to a K-pop track one minute and then something from Brazil the next minute and then a death metal band from China and you'll be going, why did you hear all this? And they'll go, TikTok. Um, so there's this really beautiful power that music has to 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 energize the conversation at a level that, that avoids all the pitfalls of the conversation up until, you know, a few years ago. That that feels mightily important, Lewis, is is this diversity of perspectives. Because, you know, climate change and the climate breakdown is something that we all share. And, you know, whatever postcode you are on planet Earth, it's something that we, we do share. But it's it's impacting us in different ways and people are doing different things to tackle it. You know, this pod is something that we're talking predominantly about what's happening in the UK. But actually, you know, really music and those communities and that that shared interest, those communities of interest around a particular bar, um, band or a genre of music opens up a platform for wider debate. The song, I take your point, and it's a really important one. It's not just about what the song is telling you, but it's about what the band and that platform uh, for, for dialogue and the exchange of ideas is, is arguably the most important part of it. Yeah, I mean... Th- it's really important that the, the music industry gets its house in order because, as I say, that that allows artists to speak out. You know, when we launched Foles for one of our early supporters, the Daily Mail turned around an article within 24 hours and they carbon audited Foles' forthcoming world tour so that they could call them out for being climate hypocrites, um, which well, there's all kinds of reasons why that just it doesn't fly anyway, but uh, no pun intended. Um, but it shows you what you're dealing with you know there are there are plenty of organizations and and players on the other side of this argument that will tell you one thing and do another or will find a space to deny the necessary action and 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 what you know without wishing to be too kind of colloquial about music can cut through a lot of that bullshit and get to the human element of this crisis to get to a resonant emotional response which is kind of what's missing a lot of the time from the very necessary kind of IPCC COP process, which can be a little bit abstract and, and a little bit too, you know, people want to know how it, you know, they want to feel how it affects their locality, their experience, their day-to-day. And music's very, music culture's always been good about taking complex ideas and making them simple. And this is just the latest example of it, really. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think the idea as well of, of kind of building up the numbers, Lewis, is is really important. You know, the number of artists, and it is the artist that's really in the firing line for these things, uh, to, to, to come forward and say that they're trying to cut their emissions and that they, you know, that they, they think these things are important um, and I think the more you build that up the more the more you've got that kind of confidence in the numbers to be like well I mean it's utterly ridiculous to say you're you're a, a climate hypocrite when you you know when you're genuinely trying to cut the, the emissions of your tour um, because we all we all live in a world where you can't you know you can't spend a pound without emitting carbon it's so pervasive in our society but actually the more you have people that can kind of share that uh, attention and you're not you know the, the the first people to do it who get you know like you say with foals getting so much grief about it it's a really it's a really brave thing to do and hopefully as as more artists and more of the industry come forward and does it there's just more of a strength in that and it's like yeah of course of course we're emitting you know, we're emitting carbon. So it's, you know, everybody is in the way that we're doing things. What we're trying to do is emit much less. Um, and I suppose I suppose that leads me on to, that I think that there is this kind of solidarity that's needed in 
you know, celebrating and learning from each other and also being able to say, you know, to also, I, I suppose, provide, provide like critical friend feedback to each other as well without it becoming an all-in green-on-green argument where all these outside forces are just delighted that we're all arguing with each other. Um, but, but that is challenging because there will be stuff that some bands will do something that another band thinks isn't a great idea. Um, so it's trying to keep the tenor of that so that you can say, loved all of that stuff. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Because I'm not so sure that feels like a great idea. Um, without it being like, you know, as if these are the two, these are the two polar opposites. Somebody doing set of actions ABC and somebody doing set of actions XYZ. Actually, that's all quite close to each other. And there's a lot of people that are happy to see none of it being done. And this, this applies right across every sector, not just music. Um, the, the kind of environmentalists are often, my personal view, quite keen uh, to argue amongst ourselves whilst forgetting that there's an awful lot of people outside that are just rubbing their hands with glee, that it's more, more of the same and more of the kind of incumbent interests getting to sweat their assets. I realise we're kind of running, running to the end of our slot, but with that focus on action, which I think is such an important thing to, to end on, I'd like to ask each of you what you think we should be prioritising. What action do we need to drive forwards? maybe in sort of 30 seconds or less, where do we need to really be pushing our attention now if we want to make a big difference? Set it as your objective at the outset and get everybody on your team targeting that as one of the things they have to deliver on, just like all the other constraints you have on a tour. You just feed it in as one of those and brilliant creative people can make these things happen, I believe. Chris? I'll go with uh, audience transport. The other work that Act 1.5 and other groups are doing to work with the cities and local transport providers to make sure you can leave a gig at 11.30 at night and get to where you're going to for more people. Um, the things that I need to see more of that, you know, um, and that'll make a big difference, I think. And Lewis, close us out. What should we all be doing? Uh, well, I, I, I think the industry should be working collaboratively, which is not necessarily something it's used to doing, to support the artists to drive the changes because ultimately the changes are great, but if the artists aren't part of the, the makeup, the audience won't understand the changes. And the changes on their own aren't significant enough in the global scheme of things to make a difference. But the changes as understood as examples of a new reality translated through the artist to the fans are an extremely powerful thing. It's a double win. You get the change, you lose the carbon, and you get the buy-in from the audience and the sense of purpose. Fantastic. Thank you all so much to think about. Um, so listen, we've got to close out. So you've all been listening to Local Zero. Please take a minute, if you can, to subscribe to the pod, hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to us. And if you know anybody who might enjoy it, word of mouth is a powerful tool too. Why don't you suggest our podcast to them? And if you haven't already, please do take a minute, find and follow us on Twitter. We are at Local Zero Pod and get involved with the discussions there. Email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. But for now, thank you again to our wonderful guests for a fabulous discussion. Thanks to everyone for listening and goodbye. Thanks. Goodbye. Produced by Bespoken Media.